This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And Rebecca Ford. Hello. Uh, and as we're recording this, we have lots to talk about, but this is uh, we're recording on Tuesday. It is the day after the debut screening of one of the final puzzle pieces remaining in this award season, which is Babylon, Damien Chazelle's uh, epic, seems to be the actual apt word to describe it. Um, so really, first things first, David and Rebecca, what was the vibe like at this anticipated screening of Babylon? I assume the energy was pretty intense. Everyone's really been watching this one closely. Oh, yes. It was, um, I think there's one screening every season where I feel like I'm running behind and it's going to be totally <laughs> packed and I'm not going to get in because everyone has been waiting to see it all season. And, and I definitely had that feeling um, this time. And and the screening was held at the Samuel Goldwyn, which is the Academy's theater with the big Oscar statues like looming in the corner. So it definitely had that buzz about it um, as we went in. Yeah. And it was packed and... There's a long line snaking around Wilshire Boulevard as you arrived, and they had a reception after for a few actors uh, in the movie. Um, Which actors? Because, I, I mean, we'll, we'll get into this, but, like, in the size of the sprawling cast, I think it was really hard for anyone to know who besides Margot Robbie, Brad Pitt, and Diego Calva were worth noting from this. Uh, Giovanna Depo is... A highlight of the movie and was definitely mingling among the crowd. Mm, okay. Yeah, it seemed like Diego and Jovan were, you know, definitely getting, working the room and also getting a ton of attention and a lot of photos um, requests. Didn't see Tobey Maguire. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Brad Pitt and Margot were there, right? They were at the Q&A? Oh, and Toby was at the Q&A, I just mean. Once it came to the mingling. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't expect Brad Pitt to try to walk through that room. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. no. Uh, so what are you guys allowed to say about Babylon? I know the reviews are still embargoed. Richard, you still haven't seen it. I haven't seen it either. And I think that you're allowed to react vaguely, it sounds like. Yeah, I think talk about its awards chances, which obviously get into, you know, a little bit of what we thought of the movie. So so we'll be careful. Um, but anyone who gauged the reactions out of the premiere can know, I, I, you know, it's, it's going to be a tougher sell than certain Damien Chazelle movies have been in the past, I think. Uh, it, it comes in at... Uh, over three hours without credits, just over. It has some incredibly wild tonal swings. Damien Chazelle remains an incredible craftsman and visual artist. And so I think you'll see the movie really compete below the line, which should help it above the line. But 
Yeah, it's. I think it's going to be a tough sell for an across-the-board campaign beyond, you know, getting a couple of nominations. Yeah, I think what we noticed at the event afterwards is this movie is too bold and vulgar for maybe the tr- traditional Academy voter f- who loves a, a Fableman's or a sort of classic movie structure. Um, you know, there's a lot of nudity. There's a lot of, I, I don't, I don't even know how to describe this. Um, <laughs> there is a lot of nudity. <laughs> there's a lot of nudity. There's I've like seen a, tweets about animal, uh, excrement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, um, yeah, yeah, there's, there's, uh, there are scenes that I definitely like winced watching and, and obviously it's on purpose, but I feel like there's a certain type of voter who's not going to be okay with that. And so, Beyond that, obviously, that's not the entire Academy at this point. I I, I feel like this movie is just going to be very polarizing. So there are things I definitely loved about it, you know, especially the first half. Um, but I just, yeah, I wonder how it's going to sit with people um, beyond the crafts, as David's saying, because the music is incredible. The, you know, the costuming is, is really, really, really stands out. So I, I think the big question is, is definitely above the line. Where does it stand on the line between Hollywood hagiography and Hollywood takedown? I mean, is it is it reverent? Is it a satire or is it somewhere in the middle? I I think one interesting thing about Damien Chazelle making this movie is he remains a real sentimentalist, but mm-hmm. he's also especially early on reveling in the hedonistic sense of debauchery of the era and there there are moments when he really chooses not to shy away from the ugliness of the period, um, but it is still ultimately basked in a nostalgic glow, which I, I think that tension is something that's going to be talked about a lot, especially by critics, because you feel some competing impulses there. The other thing I would say is that it, it definitely would not be... Um, you know, wrong to call it a comedy and for the Golden Globes to categorize it as a comedy. And that a lot of that goes into the fact that he, you know, lampoons a lot of, you know, the way films were made in the era and the the ridiculous senses, you know, the ridiculous focuses on timing and, you know, innovative strategies to get things right when the technology wasn't there. So that's all mined for a lot of comedy and silliness. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we all know that he's such a, cinephile himself and he knows so much about um, film history and I think not that I wanted this movie to be longer but not Rebecca (laughs) (laughs) the characters don't get a lot of backstory and I think that's because he's assuming you know that they are based on real Hollywood uh, stars you know and so you know Anna May Wong's history you know Clara Bow's history but I but a lot of the audience will not know that and I felt like you didn't hear anything about any of these characters' backstories. And I I do think I, we would have probably felt more for them if they had done that. Yeah, I think that's a lot to ask. And, and Brad Pitt's character is inspired by John Garfield, right? Is that mm-hmm. actually... Yeah. So, like, yes, that's someone definitely. whose, like, name I sort of knew, but I think I looked him up, you know, ahead of this movie because he was a silent star who didn't make the transition and the familiarity of even people like us with silent movies is often very limited. That's That's an interesting tactic. It's just big. It's just such a big movie. Yeah, it's so big. Yeah. There were a couple people I spoke to at the reception who were looking forward to this movie as 
the fun one uh, mm. of the season because it is, this, you know, a lot of the strong contenders are are not so fun necessarily. And, you know, for a good chunk of the movie, it feels that way, but it doesn't leave you with that in any way. And I think that that is, that seemed to be a, a sentiment that I was encountering a lot at the reception. We had some questions um throughout the past few months about Jean Smart and whether or not we should be leaving a slot for her in Supporting Actress. Um, how do you guys feel having seen that movie now? Well, unfortunately, you know, in the Q&A, they mentioned that the first version of this film was four hours long. And so it sounds like a couple of maybe her more significant scenes got mm-hmm. cut. And so you definitely want more time with her, but I, I don't see it being enough for a, a, a part being a part of the supporting conversation. Yeah, G- given the shape of the category, I, I honestly don't think she has any kind of pass. She has one lovely scene, um, but beyond that, it's and it's three hours long, so you know she's not someone who's making the big impression there. Um, Who was her character based on? It was discussed. <laughs> it seemed like she was drawing from a lot of eras and periods in this particular one because the moderator had asked about Hedda Hopper, which is obviously a different era. Um, but there is oh, a so she's bit not of, an actress. She's playing like a like a journalist. Yeah, she's a journal, okay. gossip journalist. Yeah. And apparently, well, there is the, the character writes a big profile of Margot Robbie's character, but in this movie, um, the final cut, you don't. You just kind of see the profile come out, and it, from what I gathered, a big part of her arc in the movie that was that did not make the final cut was about her writing. The profile mm. with Margot Robbie. Wait a second. So if she wrote a profile of Margot Robbie, is she not playing Rebecca Ford? It's <laughs> <laughs> me, guys. Plug. <laughs> On your stance he- now? Your fabulous headgear that you wear every week for this podcast has finally made it onto the screen. Oh, I'm so man. glad. <laughs> if only I had the style of Jean Smart in this movie. Um, no, but we should talk about Rebecca and, and Margot Robbie and your profile of her because, you know, Rebecca, you had seen some of Babylon before writing that piece, but you hadn't seen the whole thing. And, you know, your, your profile of her, the cover of Vanity Fair, out now, um, really treats her as this kind of force of nature, both behind the scenes and on screen. And it does sound like that comes through in Babylon as well. Yeah, I think, um, you know, for the cover, she walked me around the Paramount lot where they they shot a lot of this film. And you could just tell that this character was something really special to her. And and you can see why. I mean, she really delivers. It's an extremely demanding performance. Like that character, Nellie Roy, has to be sort of at an 11 the entire film. And she really delivers it. Um, and I, I think you're going to remember that performance no matter how much, uh, no matter how you feel about this film. Um, so, you know, it was really great to hear her sort of, her process for finding a character is really interesting. She does a lot of animal movement classes and, and things which you can read about in the profile that I, I found totally fascinating and could totally see them when I watched her on screen. So with Margot Robbie, I believe we're looking at the Best Actress category, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, how are we feeling about that after seeing Babylon? I think it's in the same category as um, how you think about Olivia Coleman in Empire mm. of Light. Another movie <laughs> about movies that <laughs> is... such is, a different movie. But, you know, like... it is another movie about movies that I think will meet a fairly mixed reception, fairly mm. divisive response. And... In this case, like with Olivia Coleman, Margot Robbie's giving a really big, powerful performance, you know, fairly undeniable. But it's it's to me a question of how well the movie does and how much it resonates and how far it goes, because um, I think part of what the direction of the movie and the direction of the character is is perhaps what 
will lead some to not loving this movie necessarily. Mm. And so I, I don't think she's a lock, but I think she's, you know, she's fantastic in the movie and she's absolutely in the conversation. So here's the thing that I don't think I'm the first person to bring this up. But when you guys talk about a movie being too like big and vulgar for the Academy, I think of The Wolf of Wall Street, not just because Margot yeah. Robbie's in it. And, and that movie got five Oscar nominations, including picture director and two acting nominations. Um, does that path feel viable for Babylon or is this even more wild and divisive than that movie? I think it's viable. I mean, yeah, I think it's possible. Yeah, I think that's the model, especially of, of modern you know, movies of more recent of that, of that quality. Um, it does seem that that, that Wolf of Wall Street came in from what I remember pretty divisively similarly and kind of eked it out in the end. DiCaprio was not even a sure thing for a while there uh, in best actor and, and slowly but surely it built enough steam. So yeah, I think that's the model for a movie like this. But I also think that that movie was so in conversation with, you know, Scorsese and his style and what he'd done. Um, and I think that's where part of the admiration came from. Whereas this felt like a big departure in a lot of ways for Damien and in other ways, a real continuation of, of what he's done so far. So it's, it's a different kind of swing for him, I suppose. And I, it depends on how voters take it. I do want to, um, I don't unfortunately think they'll be in the conversation for awards, but I do want to point out that Javon Adepo and Lee Jun Lee both really, I thought, had really strong performances in this. They're both too brief, but anytime they were on screen, I couldn't take my eyes off them. So it was nice to have those um, moments. It's just with this big of a film, you just don't get enough of certain characters. Do you think, I mean, without spoiling anything, obviously, do you think that there is like any obvious controversy lurking with it? Like, I was just going to ask about that. Going to, is there going to be a backlash against it? Is it going to offend people? I'm just, I mean, because it sounds like it's taking a lot of swings. So I'm just kind of curious if you think it has to navigate like tricky water. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Okay. It> does. <laughs> That's why we probably can't say too much. But, you know, yeah. I, yeah. there were a few scenes that were already being talked about okay. um, that I think will. We'll raise some eyebrows. Well, even um, last week when I talked to Sam Watson, the co-author of Hollywood, The Oriole History, like, he hadn't seen the movie, but was kind of pushing back against this idea of early Hollywood as being a Babylon at all. You know, there was the famous um, Kenneth Anger book, Hollywood Babylon, that contained a bunch of stories of wild behavior in Hollywood that's been debunked many times over the years. And I think even the notion of presenting Hollywood as being this, as opposed to like a town where everyone's making 50 movies a year and is on set 14 hours a day. Um, I'm kind of looking forward to that controversy, honestly. That seems it's- like... If we're, if we're arguing over silent movie stars, great. It's funny, Katie, because I had I was thinking of your interview, especially the first thirty minutes mm. of the movie, because I had Sam Watson saying in my head, "It's not true, it's not true," and then <laughs> it's like this insane opening set piece of <laughs> unhinged uh, old Hollywood antics. So yes. Um, it- I mean, it does seem like Damien Chadell is not trying to be like, this is a documentary about what early Hollywood no, was. No, no, I, I think that and that that definitely goes to the fictionalization of the characters and the yeah. fact that he's he is making up the world to some extent. While it's greatly informed by backstories and real people, that is a real emphasis of the movie, I think. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, you know, I did an interview with the, uh, the costume designer, Mary Zofries, recently, and she said, like, he for, it was forbidden to even consider you know, uh, flapper outfits or th- or actual looks from the period. And, and the same with um, Margot mentioned about the way they speak. Like they were not trying to, you know, uh, be historically accurate when it came to that part of the depiction. 
Well, Babylon's not actually in theaters until December 23rd. We have a ways to go. But, you know, Critics Awards, Golden Globe nominations, Critics' Choice nominations, those are all coming around the bend. So I guess that's the next real gauge of um, of how Babylon's playing outside this room. And then, Richard, you're seeing it in New York this week as well. So it's it's making its way across the coast. Yes, yeah, so screening in New York on Wednesday. Um, have no idea when a review will be up. I'm assuming somewhere in December. But I, <laughs> they wanted people to see it before critics' votes. You know, like yeah. New York Film Critics Circle is in like two, three weeks. So... Yeah, yeah, this is the time of year when time gets kind of flexible. Like a, a December movie is out now, and yeah, the conversations yeah. are all over the place. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Well, David and Rebecca, you guys were talking about Babylon being kind of anticipated as the fun one. And it made me think about Wakanda Forever, of all things, um, because that is another, you know, huge movie that we've been anticipating at the end of the year. It's now open in theaters. But as has been discussed, it's a little bit of a downer in a lot of ways, especially for a giant Marvel movie. Um, I finally saw it. I know we talked about it to some extent last week. But now that it's out, now that it is a pretty big hit and a, and a solid critical hit, I would say, like not on the level of the original Black Panther, Um but I enjoyed it a lot, despite having some of the same reservations as some critics. And it just made me wonder if we should revisit that briefly. Do we feel more bullish about its chances of being, you know, the second Marvel movie to get a Best Picture nomination now that it's a full-blown hit? I think it certainly has a momentum, you know, in, in a way. I mean, it was always going to. It's a big, heavy object entering the atmosphere at speed. But, like, yeah, I think the reaction is not as effusive as it was, you know, in 2018 when the first one came out, but also, like, how could it have been? You know, like, it's very rare that a sequel, even something as heralded as this, out outpaces its its predecessor. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that, it, I think the, the big question is, like, how much, like, does it have legs? You know, like, obviously, it'll do well this coming weekend. It'll, it'll, it'll keep making money. But like, what kind of money are we talking about? Is this going to be a phenomenon? Or is it just something to tide people over through Thanksgiving? And then the next big shiny thing comes along and, and Avatar. And, yeah, I mean, Avatar is, <laughs> is, is looming with its version of blue people riding whales in the, in the water. Um, <laughs> so I don't know, I, I, I'll be curious. I, I think that weirdly, the movie has sort of soured more in my, est- in, in my estimation, the longer mm. I sit with it. 
Um, and I'm wondering if that'll be the same for other people. I'm pretty skeptical of its chances to crack Best Picture, honestly. Um, I might push back, Katie, a little bit on the on the framing of, of how it's done critically, because from what I've seen overall, it seems more in line with a lot of MCU releases that don't get much Oscar traction. And I do think that's partly a product of high expectations, obviously. Um, yeah, you're right. Honestly, I was just looking at Metacritic. It's at 67. I had thought it was higher than that. So it, yeah, push it's, back it's accepted. A, it's a ton of movie and there's a lot of, you know, wonky MCU stuff that I just do not see a lot of Academy members going for. And You're I think Julia Louis I, Dreyfus isn't uh, um, organically integrated into the action of this movie. <laughs> um, truly, a, I love Julia Louis Dreyfus. And I, as someone who has not kept up as much with the MCU, as I would guess is true of a lot of Academy members, I was like, what is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she um, had been in the Marvel Universe before. Uh, right, little, yes, little did I the know. Winter Soldier. But wasn't the big thing when they were announcing Disney Plus and all these Marvel shows, I feel like I'm, maybe I'm remembering wrong, but like, didn't Kevin Feige or someone say, don't worry, you won't need to watch the shows to follow the movies. And then they mm. kind of quietly backslid on that. <laughs> where yeah. it's like, yes, Julia Louis-Dreyfus does appear in the post post credit scene in Black, uh, what is it called? Black Widow, Black right? Widow. And which like a movie that came out at some peak of the pandemic and there was a <laughs> Scarlett Johansson <laughs> suit, the studio over it, like, you know, like, I don't know how memorable that was. Um, and then, yeah, she's on the the show. And so, I don't know, it, it feels like it's... And then you have this other kind of backdoor pilot for uh, the Iron Man, pred- you know, successor, I guess she's supposed to be. The Iron Heart? Uh, sure. Um, nice, Katie. <laughs> yeah. uh, metal Girl? I, I don't know. Um, I liked her, though. No, she's great. But, like, what is it doing in this movie? You know, I understand why it's there from a business perspective or a synergy perspective. But I think there is enough, like, brand maintenance happening that the first Black Panther was just a standalone. I mean, yes, it had some connective tissue to the other stuff, obviously. But, like, it really stood on its own two feet yes. very sturdily. And this one uh, is, I think in some ways cynically relying on a meta-textual grief to push it into that awards conversation. And I don't know how successful they'll be at, at doing that. Mm. Yeah. Here's two things I will say that I think makes the Black Panther movies, both of them so far, kind of stand apart. They cast really charismatic actors and have them be charismatic, which all the other Marvel movies tend to like have charismatic people. And you're like, oh, they are plugged into this place where Paul Rudd makes his quip and then someone else does another thing. Um, you know, every time a new actor shows up, like Winston Duke and Letitia Wright and Lupita Nyong'o and a cameo that I guess I won't spoil still, um, you're so excited to see them and they really kind of fly off the screen. And then the other thing is that it just looks incredible. Like Ruth Carter and Rebecca, you talked to her, like her work they took my breath away every time a new character walk on screen. And I, I think we haven't doubted that crafts are strong nomination potential for this movie. Um, but I think it makes it something that you kind of need to see or hopefully feel like you need to see even if the rest of the Marvel Universe doesn't appeal to you. So I don't know if that would yeah. get Academy voters to get over their skepticism about the, like, you know, Julie Louis-Dreyfus uh, part of the storyline, but it might they'll at least see it and kind of appreciate the visuals that are spectacular. I also think we're getting to the point where we're not dealing with that many spots that are probably still open yes. for the Best Picture 10. I mean, maybe it's almost time to start uh, talking about what that list is because give us your ten, Rebecca. Guys. No way, I'm not going first. But it's just I, my I, policeman I, nine times, and then <laughs> one other, I and do, then the whale. <laughs> yes, I do love the whale. I do think we're we're probably talking about three three or four spots for you know mm-hmm. ten films that we're still talking about. So I mean, we're we, we're waiting on Avatar, and um, that's kind of it at this point. So 
Yeah. It's almost time to, but I, yeah, I think that's, for me, that's the bigger issue with Black Panther is there are only a few spots left and a lot of films that I feel like could be ahead of that in, uh, to make the list. Yeah. And in terms of the big movies, you know, I ask, do you think that Babylon or Wakanda Forever are in over Top Gun Maverick or even Elvis? And mm-hmm. I, I think the answer is no. Yeah. Yeah, we actually got a listener question about Elvis this week um, from a listener in Australia who couldn't use subtext. So I was so happy that um, that he had a direct route to us. And he just he said it feels like Elvis has become a guaranteed Best Picture nominee at this point, which I like wasn't totally sure I believed. But now you guys are making me think that's actually true. Like it's in. The Elvis Whisper campaign is real. <laughs> I was in. Uh, I, I, I was covering the Napa Valley Film Festival over the weekend, and there are a lot of Academy members in this in that area. And that was a movie that kept coming up. And I was honestly taken aback. I, I didn't, I wasn't searching for that. And I hadn't been hearing that a lot until that point. Um, but it's a movie that a lot of people love and that made a ton of money, you know, speaking of success and, and made a ton of money as an original movie from a director who absolutely put his stamp on it and made it instantly recognizably his. Um, yeah, I, I think it's looking pretty strong. I mean, I don't think it's a lock yet because it was obviously not particularly well-reviewed, but um, I think it's totally in that conversation in the same way that Bohemian Rhapsody was. Mm. It's kind of amazing because I feel like, you know, we, we're being sort of swamped by the by certain films right now and it's Elvis has been so quiet, but I think you're right. Like people, it's almost sort of like, oh yeah, and Elvis will be in the top 10. And I'm like, are we, we're just assuming? We're like, it's just, <laughs> it, it, it definitely seems to have that current behind it somehow, um, which is really interesting. The, the one other thing I wanted to say about both Babylon and Wakanda Forever is to your earlier question, Richard, about Jean Smart, I think there was a lot of eyes on both her and Angela Bassett mm-hmm. for potentially disrupting supporting actress. And it just still feels <laughs> as unformed and chaotic and kind of fascinating as it did before those movies bowed, because um, I just don't think we have a front runner at all. Yeah. I mean, I haven't like gone back and looked at it in a while, but it still is like... Some combination of women talking, Carrie Condon, and you can kind of start taking some guesses from there. Carrie Mulligan. Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis, Stephanie Hsu, uh, Tuso Mbedu, uh, and then, you know, Angela Bassett. I'm looking at Gold Derby. A lot of people are putting in for her. She really is phenomenal. She's great. In Wakanda Forever. Yeah. And then she's like, has a significant role in it. You know, yeah. she's not just in a couple scenes as the queen. She's like actually involved in the plot in an integral way. And um, that I think counts for a lot. I mean, because there are so many great performances that could fit into that category, but it's like, ooh, I don't know, like how many people from Woman King would they look right. at, you know, for that or whatever other, or, you know, even she said, which like, okay, like they, they're running uh, Zoe Kazan in lead and Carrie Mulligan in supporting. So you think, okay, there's your supporting, but there's also like Jennifer Ely and Samantha Morton. And, you know, mm-hmm. like, I, I obviously like a campaign has to pick its horse and, and say sorry to the other ones. But like, I don't know, maybe there's room for some sort of like actual supporting performance surprise. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. The, the, the fear of a situation like this where it's so disparate is that you just get like two women talking nominees two everything everywhere nominees and then claire and carrie condon and that's it and i i do think that's a possibility because it's so hard 
to narrow this down. Doesn't it make you think of the year that Tilda Swinton won, where like a different yes. person won supporting actress at every Amy award Ryan, show? Ruby yeah, D. love that category. <laughs> that was a really really fun year. Worth noting, I think, is that Glass Onion uh, premiered or had its LA premiere. It had been at TIFF already uh, this, on Monday night, the same night as Babylon. I don't know how close across town they were from each other, but it seemed like a real um, battle royale. Um, so I wonder about Janelle Monet and um, and how that movie might kind of start ramping itself back up in in this category and everywhere else. Um, and speaking of Napa Valley, uh, <laughs> Janelle Monet was in Napa Valley, uh, and I she won a, a Trailblazer Award there, and I moderated a Q and A with her. Um, and she was she stayed basically the whole day, <laughs> and was talking to everybody, and um, seems to be really enjoying the moment. And Netflix is really pushing that campaign. But yeah, I, I, it is a case to your point, Richard, of she's the very clear awards push of the movie, but sometimes if you're the only one, it's not quite enough. Um, so we'll, I think we'll see how far that goes. Yeah, we're all we're trying to figure out um, how it fits into Best Picture also, right? I think we've all gone back and forth, you know, knowing that the original Knives Out didn't make it in there, like, is the sequel going to do it? Maybe, um, you know, a sequel issue similar to Wakanda Forever. Yeah. The biggest takeaway I heard was that um, people want Kate Hudson to be on the next season of The White Lotus, kind of playing the same character. (laughs) (laughs) It is really just wild to have The White Lotus uh, airing at the same time as, you know, Glass Onion coming out. They just they are so um, such a spiritual handshake between the two. And Triangle of Sadness, in a way. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. And the menu, which we said we were going to talk about, um, but maybe we'll get to shortly. Um, the the eat the rich theme, not literally in the menu. I'm not spoiling anything, um, but it, it really is a, a theme of this season. But by saying you're not spoiling that, you're spoiling that may have been a spoiler. <laughs> yeah. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in-between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Well, speaking of The White Lotus, which if you want to hear more about, you can hear Richard and Chris on Still Watching uh, talking about every week. And I, we'll get to it at some point. Um, but I did want to talk about television to wrap this up because Fleischman is in Trouble premieres on FX this week. Um, I still haven't read the book. I think I'm the only person who works in media who hasn't. So I feel like I need to give this over very quickly because everyone else says it's great. Tell me why it's great. I haven't read the book either, Katie. Um, David, please explain why the book is good. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and the show. Um, Richie, you want to talk about the show? Yeah, I mean, I haven't read the book. It, I will say, as an endorsement of the show, it made me want to read the book. Um, you know, it's based on the novel by Taffy Burdesser-Ackner um, that's, you know, about a 39-year-old-ish, 40-ish man who uh, is in getting divorced. He's played by Jesse Eisenberg. Claire Danes plays his ex-wife. Lizzie Kaplan is narrating with a lot of text I, I think is lifted directly from the book because yes, Taffy did her, the own, her own adaptation. Um, and it's about him being newly single. He has kids. Um, he's navigating the wealthy wilds of the Upper East Side. And um, that's kind of a big part of, its, of the show's fixation. And the first episode is really just about this guy, Toby, discovering like Tinder and other apps um, that straight people use. Um, I mean, I, I, I use Tinder. Don't worry. Um, but uh, 
And I was just really kind of put off by it because I was like, well, these are straight people problems. I don't care about any of this. This is boring and weird. And I've seen way too much of Jesse Eisenberg's ass, frankly. Back to the rich people problems of the White Lotus, much more relatable. Right. Um, And then as the show goes, and it's my understanding, obviously, that this is how the novel works, too, is that you have Lizzie Kaplan narrating and, and, you know, with each successive episode, her character, who is kind of a stand-in for Taffy, um, she's a, you know, magazine writer, kind of semi-retired, living in suburban New Jersey um, and uh, and she starts to move toward the center of the sh- of the show uh, in a really interesting way and Lizzie Kaplan is amazing in it. Um, I want yes. her to narrate anything I ever write. Um, and then it becomes this really mournful, wistful meditation on like middle age and and yes, the, these are all very rich people problems that these people are having. But like, it it becomes this kind of existential thing that there's a moment in one episode toward the end of the run where I was like this is almost like enlightened, like the way that Hmm. it's kind of this dreamy musing about life and, and, you know, your experience in the world. And and it really got me in a way that I did not think it would. And, um, you know, Claire Danes is amazing in it. Um, Jesse Eisenberg is, you know, kind of a take it or leave it proposition I find as an actor and he works in this role. Um, but yeah, it, it starts rough, at least it did for me. So if people have that same reaction, I would say stick with it. I find that reaction really informative because I have read the book and, you know, I, I, I was surprised at the beginning how faithful it was to the book, mainly because I was wondering how it would fare on a week to week basis for people watching it. Because, you know, the structure of the novel is really canny and very much about subverting your expectations, but it works differently with a show where you're instead of you know, reading a chapter every night, you're watching an episode every week. So that's going to be the challenge, I think, for the show, because it doesn't introduce itself as as the kind of really smart and empathetic and um, deep show that it is. But um, that's kind of part of its twisty appeal. Um, but I, yeah, I thought they did a great job with the adaptation. And um, it's a, if you like the book... It's a very faithful and smart um, take on it. It really does recreate the feeling of reading a novel. You know, mm-hmm. it unfolds yeah. over these seven episodes. It jumps between characters, but keeps it all in sort of cohesive memory. Like you're, you're aware of where everyone is, unless you're not supposed to know where someone is. And then, you know, there's a satisfying reveal later on. It it, it feels very substantive and, and like you, like a satisfying meal. And, you know, some books just have a shaky beginning or something. You're kind of like, I don't know if I'm really into this. And you just have to kind of press on a few more chapters and then it gets you. And And this is that's what Fleischman did for me. And, uh, in a way, you know, look, I still I don't really care about this doctor who makes three hundred thousand dollars a year <laughs> complaining about money. You know, OK, cool. <laughs> you know, but but <laughs> like I think the show and, and I think I'm assuming the novel is aware of that, you know, to some extent. And so as long as there is a little bit of self-consciousness about um, the, the, the very rarefied world we're, we're walking in. I don't know. I found something. Maybe it's just because I'm about that age and like whatever. But um, it, it, it really struck a chord with me. And again, I can't stress enough, like Lizzie Kaplan, this is like a different, like this is a whole different level for her as a performer. And um, I think she's definitely someone to watch for, you know, Emmy stuff or whatever else. Yeah, she's kind of remarkable. I mean, I was pretty blown away by her work, especially in the back half of the series. I've just started the show. I've only watched two, but 
I hadn't heard anything about it until we all started talking about it uh, internally. And I know it's going to be a Hulu uh, release. And I, I don't know if that was just me being in the Oscar bubble, but I feel like this is going to be sort of a word of mouth show situation, unless I'm just, uh, you know, just not tapped in. But I feel like it sort of came out of nowhere for me. And, and it feels like one of those sort of breakout hits. It is hard to assess, you know, because like Katie said, like, it, it was a very media book, because Taffy's from that world. She's a great profile writer at GQ, and she did stuff at the Times. And um, so I don't, I can't really fairly assess it, because it's like, everyone I know knows that book. And like, <laughs> yeah. like, I went to the uh, premiere party for it, and um, in New York, and, and it was packed. And it was like, every media person you've ever known in your life was there. And like, <laughs> and that was obviously a deliberate invite list, you know? Um, yep. So, uh, you know, but, but what we care about or what we know about, you know, obviously does not <laughs> always translate to what other people care about. Uh, so yeah, Rebecca, I'm curious, like if people like stick with the show and then start recommending it, if it kind of could have a sleeper status. Uh how are we feeling about uh, Jesse Eisenberg being middle-aged at this point? Uh, having been an adult when The Social Network came out, I feel a little stressed about it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. There's actually a joke in the show where someone is saying, like, oh, you should go into tech, and, and Jesse Eisenberg's character says, I don't have enough hoodies, which I thought was, was cute. Um, yeah, hoodies I mean, are he, back now. John Fetterman revived them. <laughs> right. He, um, he doesn't look – he still looks young, you know. And and there are times in the show because he's you know playing opposite Claire Danes, uh, who is older than him, um, and you know they're both great together. But like there are times when you're like, but this is just a kid. What's he talking about? You know. Um, but he, Jesse Eisenberg really is 39 years old. <laughs> I know. I I was shocked when I looked at that. I I felt the same way about him as I, as I did about Lizzie Kaplan. Um, it was. I thought the casting was really clever in the way because Adam Brody's also in a in a pretty pivotal role in terms of the, you know, amalgamation of these characters, but he felt like it felt like he was peeling some new layers too, and it was kind of fascinating to watch all these actors who you've watched since they were teenagers, in a lot of cases, play grownups and kind of wrestle with that. It felt very intentional to me because Lizzie Kaplan. Uh, of course, falls into that category, as does Claire Danes. Um, does anyone know where Adam Brody's house is? Because there's some sort of fountain of youth in his backyard. Like, he, <laughs> he looks incredible. And he's really good on the show. And and I think yeah, to, the, to the Eisenberg thing, like, I think very smartly, the show lets that sort of petulant social network E Eisenberg pop out a few times when you're sort of mm -hmm. seeing a different facet of Toby's character, you know. But for the most part, I think you're right, David, that he does there's a warmth to his performance. There's a sort of uh, a gentleness to it that um, you don't always associate with his work. So uh, yeah, it is, it is exciting to see him really step into this expansive grown up role. Yeah. Well, Richard, you mentioned Emmys, but we actually have a lot sooner uh, to look for some awards for this kind of thing because the SAGs and the Golden Globes are both coming right around the corner. Um, and these TV awards are always really fun because you get to put in a lot of new shows like the current season of The White Lotus. The Bear will be eligible for awards. Um, so we can really um, kind of get excited about that. And then by the time the Emmys come around next September, we'll be like, oh, Fleischman, I don't want to talk about it anymore. But now it's, yeah. it's fun and new. Yeah, I think it could do well at both of those uh, awards. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Rebecca, you'll have been to the Academy's Governor's Awards, uh, yet another high-profile Academy-adjacent event uh, on the calendar full of them. So um, you're excited about that, I assume, right? Yes, my pre-Thanksgiving 
uh, event. Super excited. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we'll talk about that in more next week. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter, for now, um, at HWD and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. You can also email us, as our Australian listener did, at littlegoldmen at vf.com. We really do love hearing directly from you. Our editor and producer is Brett Pukes, and this week's award for the best description of next year's Vanity Fair Oscar party goes to David Canfield. Unhinged old Hollywood antics. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.